Let's just begin with the Nom and then we'll discuss something. So we can do a number two things. I can start and we'll continue with some Bhagavad Gita and we'll continue with this 13th chapter of it because even though that last part, Jnanam, Gayam, Jnanagamyam, that the whole thing, Sarvasyahriti, in everybody's heart, Vishtitam, buried in everybody's heart is this knowledge. Pretty much we could uh, have stopped it there, but I, I think that there's some more, this chapter is, gets a little more difficult after that, but there's some very beautiful parts and I can just read on and kind of explain a little bit more so that if and when you study the 13th chapter of the Gita, you'll have some uh, uh, little commentary on it so that maybe it'll make more sense. It's a little difficult independently to do it. I can do that, I will do that, but I can also uh, spend 15 minutes talking about how I met Swami Dayananda. Yes. Is that of any interest? Yes. So, because it's kind of a funny story and it'll be a little lighter and we'll take a little break from this heavy Vedanta business uh, for just a little bit. So it was 1969, Rukmini wasn't coming with me and I had that book with Ramana Maharshi, Who Am I?, in the backpack and I headed off for India. I don't have to get into the details. I went overland and uh, there were lots of young Westerners going overland. I actually met a young Italian boy. He was, uh, I was 19 or 20 at the time and I think he was 17. And I met him hitchhiking somewhere in Turkey and I asked him where he's going and he said uh, he's going to India. And I said, well, I'm going to India. You want to see if we can hitchhike together? He said, sure, we can do that. So we started hitchhiking together. And uh, I asked, he asked me, why am I going to India? I said, I took out the book. I said, I want to find a guru like Ramana Maharshi so that I can figure out how to get up there and never come down. I said, why are you going to India? He said, oh, I don't want any guru. Forget that. That's ridiculous. Well, then why are you going? I want to go so I can throw away my shoes. He said, that's why I'm going. So I can throw away my shoes. I said, okay, sounds like a plan. Let's travel together. So we started hitchhiking, and when we got to the Afghan border, I was over 18, so I got through, but he was uh, 17, and in those days you needed, if you wanted to travel and you're 17, you needed some kind of letter from your parents to go through the border, and he didn't have it. I said, well, 
I can't wait here for the letter. I got to go find my guru. So I wish you the best of luck. And I took off. So I left him behind. And uh, I headed off for India. I stopped in Kabul and a few places, through Pakistan, a few adventures. But I finally made it to the Pakistani. When you go overland, you come to a place called Amritsar. That's one of the main uh, passages. You know Amritsar, the Golden Temple is yeah. up. You've been there. So I came through Amritsar, and then you come down to Delhi. And I finally got to Delhi, and I saw a bunch of young Westerners that looked kind of like me. And I went up to them and said, uh, so where's all the gurus? They said, you got to go to Rishikesh. So Delhi to Rishikesh is five hours. So I got a third-class train, and I went to Hardwa, and then I hitchhiked to Rishikesh. So when I got to Rishikesh, now the search was, where's Ramana Maharshi? Of course, he's dead, but where's someone like Ramana Maharshi? So I didn't know where to stay, and I saw a sign, Shivananda Ashram. And I walked up the steps, I walked in there, I said, uh, is there any place to stay? They said, yeah, you can stay here. I said, how much? They said, free. I said, free? Great. Do I have to do any karma yoga? Nah, you just come, you can stay. No karma yoga, no nothing. If you want, there's a kanda kirtan going 24 hours a day. You can come and they have a library up there. Have you been to Shivananda Ashram, a lot of you? So then you know this place. So this was 1969 when I arrived there. Who was the guru, Mike uh, Chandra, at that time? Chidananda. Chidananda was no, at the Krishna ashram. Was, uh, was it Krishnananda? Okay, maybe he was the resident there, and Chidananda was going yes, and coming, something like that. So I was in there, and I saw all these swamis dressed up in orange and stuff, and I'm thinking, this is not Ramana Maharshi. I'm looking for someone in a diaper. You know, <laughs> one diaper, and that's it. So these guys didn't look like Ramana Maharshi. I wasn't too impressed with any of it. So I started searching for Ramana Maharshi. And uh, I would go up the Ganga, and in those days there were lots of babas and gurus and sadhus, and, and they were living uh, in caves, and uh, they had little huts that they made, and you could go wander up and find these guys. And they were all crazier than the next guy. And nobody was like Ramana Maharshi. And I would come back every day to Shivananda Ashram. I would sit in the Kirtan Hall, and then the next day I'd go out looking for Ramana Maharshi. After about two, two weeks in the ashram, I was starting to get dejected. Uh-oh, I don't think I'm going to find Ramana Maharshi too easy. And I went into a chai shop, and I ordered a chai, and I had that book. And in the book, when you open it up, there's a picture. Most of these little books of Ramana Maharshi, if you know, when you open it up, there's a picture of Ramana in there. You know that picture where the eyes are just popping out? Whoa! So, that picture. So I got the thing, and the chai wala comes, serves the chai, he sees the picture, he says, Hey, bye! This picture, I know one sadhu, He's living on the banks of the Ganga in a little hut. And on his puja, he has the same picture, big picture, of Ramana Maharshi. I said, oh, really? Wow. Can you take me there? 
yeah, right after I get off of work, I'll take you. So sure enough, he takes me to the thing there, and there's a compound. He's got like a fence around it, and inside there's a small little thatched hut, just like your picture out of some book. Very beautiful. And this guy comes out really dark skin. He wasn't Indian. I think he was from Malaysia or something. Brahmachari is wearing white, and um, he sees me. He says, yes, can I help you? I said, this uh, person said that in your puja you have a big picture of Ramana Maharshi. Um, are you uh, a follower of Ramana Maharshi? He says, I love Ramana Maharshi. Uh, oh, uh, Ramana Maharshi. I said, really? He says, come in, have a chai. So I go into his little hut there, very simple thing. He's got a library on a, uh, one little wall, and on his puja, there's a big picture of Ramana Maharshi, but there's a bigger picture of a Swami, Swami Dayananda. <laughs> so I didn't know who that was at the time. And he's got the Ramana Maharshi, Dayananda, and uh, some candles and incense, and that was his puja. So I said, uh, so do you study Ramana Maharshi? He says, yes, yes, I've read all of his books. I very much appreciate him. And, um, you know, right now I'm studying the, uh, the, uh, the Kena Upanishad. I said, what? The Kena Upanishad. What's that? Oh, you know the Upanishads, the Vedanta? I said, what's that? No, no, I'm only interested in who am I. Please. No, no, it's very interesting. I said, what's that? And he started to tell me about Vedanta, the Upanishads, the Koshas, things that I'd never heard before, because in Ramana Maharshi, there's just one thing. No matter what, it comes back to the I, who am I? I love that idea. No God, no sadhana, no karma yoga, no... You want to meditate? Who wants to meditate? I do. Who am I? You want to do karma yoga? Who does? I do. Who am I? Always back to the I, the most direct path. I thought this was it. But he's talking about the five koshas and uh, he's talking about um, the uh, karma yoga and he's talking... And I never heard of any of this stuff, but it's kind of sad and interesting. And he did have a picture of Ramana up there. So after the chai, I said, you know, I'd like to come back tomorrow, if it's okay, and maybe you can uh, tell me a little more about this thing. So I went back the next day, and he starts to talk about that thou art, and uh, different stories from the Upanishads, and I'm starting to learn things that I never heard by merely reading, and I read every single book about Ramana Maharshi, all of the Arthur Osborne books, all of the, the books that were so-called translated by Ramana, from Ramana, etc., etc. And this was all new stuff. I said, can I come back tomorrow? He said, sure. So I would come back every day, and after about four or five or six days, I'd go back to Shivananda Ashram, but I would be very anxious to go back to this gentleman. And I would go, and then after about six days, I said to him, you know, I would really like to study with you. Can I be your student? So he says to me, uh, 
why would you want to be with the candle when the sun is out? I said, what do you mean? He says, you can go to my guru. I'm nothing. You can go directly to the sun. I'm like a little candle here. I said, really? Who's your guru? He points to the picture. He says, Swami Dayananda. I said, does he speak English? He speaks English better than me. Will he take me as a student? He'll absolutely take you as a student because I can tell that you're a sincere seeker. I said, but I don't have any money. He says, it doesn't matter. You go. He'll teach you. And he wrote down on a piece of paper, Dear Swamiji, I met this boy and he's very interested in Vedanta and I highly recommend him. And he signed his name. Uh, at that time, his uh, name was something like Subodhananda, something like this. Subodha Brahmachari. He wasn't a, a Swami yet. He became a Swami later, but at that time he wasn't. And he, get, and he said, Swami Dayananda is hard to find because he's traveling all over the country teaching the Bhagavad Gita. So what's the Bhagavad Gita? This Bhagavad Gita is a very important Vedantic text. I said, okay. So then I decided, he said, he'll be in, I was in Rishikesh, he'll be in Madras. In those days it was Madras, Chennai, um, on this so-called date. He's traveling around, he'll be in Chennai on that date. You go and you meet him in Chennai. I said, okay, I'm off. And I hitchhiked from Rishikesh to Delhi. And by the time I got to Delhi, I looked and I saw I had hepatitis, really bad hepatitis. And, um, you know, you can tell when you push your nails, they, it's very dark underneath. And your eyes start to get yellow at the bottom, your urine becomes very dark, and you know you have hepatitis. So now I'm in Delhi and I have hepatitis and I have that crazy idea that I don't take medicine. So once again I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I'm in Delhi and I'm trying to fast to get over the hepatitis and I, I found a guest house that was like 20 rupees a night, which is about 5 or 10 cents in those days. And I, I got a room and uh, I was going to somehow get better and then go meet Swamiji. And I would go out every day to buy coconuts because I thought I would go on a coconut water fast. So one day I go out to get the coconuts. It's 110 degrees in Delhi and I'm coming back and I pass out on the street. And I'm laying on the street and I can't get up. And this French guy comes, he looks at me, he goes, Hey man, when I want to pray I go to the temple. <laughs> But when I'm sick, I go to the hospital. He called me, he called the taxi, he paid the taxi guy, he picked me up, he threw me in the back, and the taxi took me to the general hospital in Delhi. And there I was. There's no treatment for hepatitis. What they do is they give you glucose. They give you a glucose drip, and you rest. So I spent four days in the hospital, and at the end, it cleared up in four days. My nails were good. My urine was better. I felt better. And they said, okay, you can go. I said, how much do I owe you? They said, forget it. Just go. No charge. Beautiful. I get on a third-class train, and I travel three days on the train on a wooden seat 
In those days, it was horrible third class. It was like unbelievable. It was like being in a zoo. And you find, I finally got there, and I had the address, and I come, I'm filthy. You can imagine three days, no showering, no same clothes. And I come <laughs> to a mansion in the suburbs of uh, 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 the address, I didn't know. And there's two guards outside, and I come up, and they go, what do you want? I said, I'm here to see Swami Dayananda. He said, he's not here. When's he going to be here? We don't know. Maybe an hour, maybe two hours. I said, I have a letter. I have a letter from his student. It says I can see him. So the guy says, okay. They open up the gates. He says, wait here. So I'm standing there, waiting for Swami Dayananda. About two hours later, sitting, and the gates open, and three shiny ambassadors come into the yard, standing on the side. And in the middle, they open the door, and they put down this thing, and Swami Dayananda gets out, and he stands on this thing, and they begin washing his feet. He's got beautiful orange like silk uh, uh, ro robes, orange, but beautiful. And he looks beautiful. And he's standing on that thing, and they wash the feet, and now they're putting yogurt on his feet, and they put some <laughs> things on the feet. I'm standing on this, they're doing Padma Puja to the, to the thing there, and I'm on the side of it. Oh my God, this is not Ramana Maharshi. <laughs> this guy, what is this business? Oh no. I came all the way, what am I going to do here? While this is going on, he catches me in the corner of his eye. He sees this dirty hippie in the corner with long hair and dirty clothes. He walks over to me, he says, Can I help you? And I give him the note. And he sees sincere student. <laughs> I said, I'm here to study Vedanta. He looks at me, he reads the note, and he tells his assistant, go get that guy some clean pajamas, put him in the room over there, take a shower, and I'll see you for dinner. And that was the beginning. I spent two years with Swami Dayananda. We traveled all over to India together. He knew I had no money. He gave me money so that I could occasionally buy my own tea or something. When we traveled, he bought the tickets. When I needed new pajamas, he bought the new pajamas. He initiated me as his own brahmachari. I was his only Western disciple. There were no other Westerners or foreigners there. There was a bunch of Indians because they were all with the Chinmaya mission. But I was the only Westerner there. He gave me a name, he gave me a mantra, and I became his student. And uh, after about a year and a half, some other people came. And by the end of two years, there was about 25 Westerners that were running around. So whenever he would give a lecture, the 25 Westerners were in the front, and the Indians were in the back. It became very prestigious for, in those days, for Swami to have foreign students. So we were up there. And um, I was the head disciple, believe it or not. And, uh, <laughs>
when Swamiji was busy, and they would ask him a question, they said, go ask Admin Chaitanya, ask Admin Chaitanya. Because I memorized every lecture that he gave, I knew everything that he said, I could repeat it verbatim just about. And I fell in love with Swami Dayananda, and he pointed out this witnessing conscious to me, and answered my question about going up and coming down. The witness doesn't go up and doesn't come down. You don't get it, you don't lose it. And wow, this is why I came to India. He's my guru, he's my patron, he's my everything. I felt like I, I found what I wanted. And he was criticizing Ramana Maharshi. When I'd go into the room, he would tell me, that business about who am I? Nah, it'll take you nowhere. It's only this Vedantic teaching. Vedanta is a valid means of knowledge. By yourself, asking who am I, will never get rid of your ignorance. It's only through the teaching of the Guru. It's not through samadhi, like Swami Chinmaya says, but it's not through asking who am I. You have to go to a teacher and he has to teach you. And those very words have the power to throw your mind back so that you can intuit the truth for yourself. And this was the beginning of uh, how I became totally devoted to Swami Dayananda. And then he started talking about, we're going to open up an ashram in California and I'm going to put you, Atma Chaitanya, in charge. I was going to be in charge of the California ashram. So, I told you the final story, right? Where I saw the book, Misconceptions About Advaita, so I don't have to repeat that. But that's how I met. That was the beginning of my Vedantic studies. And I learned a tremendous amount from Swami Dayananda. All the basic ideas about Vedanta, all the basic concepts, a reverence for Shankaracharya because Dayananda lived and breathed Shankara. And so I got involved with Shankaracharya and studying his bhashyas. He only taught the Gita according to Shankara's bhashya. And in the morning we would take different texts like Triktrashya Viveka, the discrimination of the seer and the seen, Atma Bodha, um, uh, all of these what's called Prakarana Granthas, little texts that are ascribed to Shankara. It turns out that none of those books were written by Shankara, but that's a whole other story. And we would study those in the morning, a small class, and every evening there'd be a Gita class where a lot of people would come. And so at the end of two years, I had done almost all of the chapters at least twice, maybe three times. And uh, I knew something about the basics of Vedanta. And that's how I originally learned in the beginning Advaita Vedanta. But then it came to when after that, then I realized that uh, there were certain defects in the teaching. And I went to Bangalore and I continued my studies with some other Swamiji's. What happened was, when I left Swami Dayananda, I was the head disciple, so all the other Westerners would say, Hey, what happened to Atma Chaitanya? What's going on? And 
they came to find out, some of them came to Bangalore, they, they found out I was in Bangalore, and I told them what had happened. And so they went back and they told Swamiji that I'm now with Swami Satchitanandendra. And um, that began a whole thing where Swami Dayananda taught his students that what Atma Chaitanya is studying is all wrong. He had a student by the name of Martha Dougherty. Anyone here of Martha Dougherty? She went to Harvard University and wrote her PhD thesis, Why My Guru Was All Wrong. That was her PhD thesis at Harvard. <coughs> Sorry? Yeah, why my guru was wrong. And the experts at Harvard signed off on this thing. This is a good PhD thesis. That's how much they know about Vedanta. Anyway, um, he, has, he had another student by the name of Thomas Comins, who's a great scholar of Vedanta. Anybody hear of Thomas Comins? He's written a number of books, great books. I suggest that you read Michael, them. Michael Comins. Michael Comins. What did I say? Thomas. Thomas. Michael Comins. He wrote a book that's called... Uh, Gaudapada, Shankara, Padmapada, and Sureshwara, the, tr the early tradition of Advaita Vedanta. It's on that, uh, it's on that thing I gave you. So in that book, there's a whole chapter criticizing what I'm teaching you here today. So this is how it's been ever, ever since then. So the day I left Swami Dayananda, I never saw him again until 1998 at the Kumbh Mela at Hardwar. I was walking down the street, and for some reason, because Swami Dayananda usually had a whole entourage, he was walking by himself on the other side of the street. And I was walking this way, he's walking this way, and I looked up and our eyes locked and he saw me, and I saw him, and I was too embarrassed no. to go over to him. And I di diverted my eyes, and I quickly split. So I saw him at the Kumbh Mela, but I didn't speak to him. But he saw me, he recognized me, and he knew who I was. At the very end of his life, just before he died, I went to his ashram in Rishikesh, Amazing. They pulled him out on a stretcher. I swear he was on a stretcher. He could hardly see. He was almost deaf. He was, and he was teaching the Bhagavad Gita. And I went to that class, and at the end of the class, I went up very close. He looked at me. He recognized me. I touched his feet, and he blessed me. And then about two months later, he died. He had a samadhi. So I saw him at the end, and I was very grateful to Swami Dayananda for many things. And uh, uh, there was, I was, I don't feel any uh, animosity towards him. I feel very grateful towards him. He was a great Vedantin. Until his last breath, he was teaching this. He lived and breathed Vedanta. And he was the only one who was saying Ramana Maharshi had it wrong and that even his own guru had it wrong. He had the courage to do that and I respected him for that very much. 
but the old ideas of mula vidya and making knowledge strong and repeated knowledge and that the wise man sees the world but knows that it's false. All of those ideas are wrong. And he believed that and he taught that to his students. And that's why we departed. But that was just philosophical disagreement. He was a very wonderful man. And if, has anyone attended his lectures? You've seen it on YouTube? Yeah. So, he was a wonderful orator. The audience would be enraptured. He would tell jokes. I would hear the same joke. And every place he went, he told the same joke. He himself would laugh harder than the audience. His <laughs> jokes would make... And it was so infectious that the people... Just because he was so... Um, taken by his own joke that everybody else would, would laugh at. And he had a way about it, and he was a wonderful teacher, and people really got it. I used to wonder, I'd sit in the, in the beginning, I would sit in the lecture hall, and he would talk, and at the end of the lecture, everybody would be walking out, and would think, where are they going? Where are they going? Where are these people going now? I don't understand. How could they not just stay here and beg him to be their guru? Because I was just so... The teaching was so sublime and pure and clear. And How could these people attend the lecture and leave and go about their business again? But anyway, that's how I met Swami Dayananda. Okay. Let's do a little Bhagavad Gita in the world and the evening. Maybe a little Q&A? Before the Gita? Okay. Yeah? That's even better. Please, any questions? Sir. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> you just said uh, that most of the little texts of Shankara uh, came out that they are not from Shankara. So Most of the books that are ascribed to Shankara are not from Shankara. So which do you think are actually from Shankara? There's only four books that we can be absolutely sure are Shankara's. Mm -hmm. His commentary on the Ten Upanishads, his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, and his commentary on the Brahma Sutras. Those are his. So you can study those with absolute confidence. And amongst those three, the most important is the Brahma Sutra. Mm -hmm. Everything in the Brahma Sutra becomes, that's Adi Shankaracharya, Brahma Sutra Bhashya Kara, the one who wrote the Bhashya on the Brahma Sutras. That's the text that sets the standard. That's his magnum opus. There's no greater writing by Shankara than his commentary on the, Bhagavad, on the Brahma Sutras. Once you've understood that, what his teaching is from studying the Brahma Sutras, then you can look at the other texts to see if anything in those texts contradict what he wrote in the Brahma Sutras. And it turns out that everything in the Bhagavad Gita, the commentary, and all of his commentaries are in perfect unison with the Brahma Sutras. So we can be confident about that. There's another thing that we can be confident of, that he had at least one disciple that we're aware of, and his name is Sureshwaracharya. 
Sureshwarcharya wrote three texts. Shankara's commentary on the Bridharanyaka, he wrote a commentary, it's called the Bridharanyaka Bhashya Vartika. A Vartika is a commentary, is a text that explains the Bhashya. And it contains three things. Uktam, Anuktam, Duruktam. What is said in the Bhashi is called Uktam. And he, just, and he explains what has been said. Anuktam, what has not been said in the Bhashiya because everything can't be said in the commentary. There are things that have to be left out. And so in the Vartika, what was not said, he says. That's Anuktam. And then there's another thing which is such a beautiful part of the Advaita tradition. Doruktam. What was wrongly said, what your own guru said that was wrong, you corrected. Sureshwara didn't believe like Shankara. Shankara said only brahmanas can take sannyasa, for example. And Sureshwara said that's doruktam, that sannyasa is available to all the castes. So he disagreed with his own guru. The tradition of Vedanta is that you don't even have to accept what the guru said. The guru wants you to be better than him. The guru wants the student to be better than the teacher, that the, two te the student should, should surpass the teacher. Standing on the shoulders of the guru, he hopes that you go better than him. The guru knows he's an ignorant man. The teacher is not a jnani. There may be mistakes. He's hoping the student will be better than him. And Sureshwara in certain respects, was even better than Shankaracharya, in my humble opinion. He's a brilliant writer. If anyone really wants to study Vedanta, I recommend this Naishkarma Siddhi by Sureshwaracharya. It's a Vedantic gem that very few texts can even come close to. People don't even know about it, but this is something, this Naishkarma Siddhi. You can spend a couple of years just dropping your head into that text. And this complete story about the four disciples going into four directions, and it's all a legend. Those, the, the earliest biography of Shankara was probably the 14th century, over 600 years after Shankara died. Mythological stories that are not even worth paying attention to. Forget it, that he went into the ocean and his mother wouldn't give him some yas, so an alligator came and grabbed him and then the mother saw it and said, oh, you're going to die? Okay, you can take sannyas. So he took sannyas and then the alligator let him go and now he's a sannyasi. Thank you, Mom. And that was that story. There's another story that says he was debating a guy and whoever wins the debate, if I lose the debate, I'm going to become a dualist. But if you lose the debate, you become a non-dualist. And so the debate was going and Shankara was killing him. So the guy says, I'm going to debate you on sex. He says, sex? I'm a monk. 
What, what do I know about sex? He says, one second. And supposedly he went into Samadhi and he entered the body of a king and the king had a harem. And he went in the harem and had unbelievable sex with all the ladies, came back and totally defeated the guy in the sex debate. <laughs> this is what we get in the stories of Shankara. All of these people, these stories, they just, you know, forget it. If you want to know Shankara, he's in the Bashir. That's the only Shankara that we know. He lives in his commentary. Forget any other thing. You read his books, then you'll understand his mind. He reveals his mind to us through his commentary. And there's one other text that we can be absolutely sure is his, and that's called The Thousand Teachings of Shankara, Upadesha Sahasri. We know that it's his for a number of reasons. Sureshwara quotes from all three of the four chapters of Upadesha Sahasri. He says, as my guru says, and he quotes from Upadesha Sahasri, and there's nothing in that text that contradicts the Bashiya, so we can be very confident that that's his text. The most common text that people study to study Shankaracharya is a text called Viveka Chudamani. Most people, if you ask them, have you studied Shankara? Oh yeah, I read the Crest Jewel of Discrimination. That text was written in the 12th century, at least 400 years after Shankara. You know what the problem is? After Shankara died, somehow, somebody got the idea, let's open up four Shankara Mutts. You know the Shankara Mutts? Sringiri, Dvarka, Puri, and Jyotimat, the four Mutts. You know who's the head of each of those Mutts? Shankara. Shankaracharya. Yes. You know what happens when they write a book? They sign it. Shankaracharya. <laughs> so now, every 20 years, a new Shankaracharya at, at a mutt, and there's four mutts, you're getting lots of Shankaras, they're all writing books, and they're writing Shankaracharya. And so, now we have so many books with the name Shankaracharya, but it's not Adi Shankaracharya. If you want to know Adi Shankaracharya, you've got the Gita, the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutras, and Upadesa Sahasri. And then you have Gordapada, because he says that that's my guru, so you can be confident that Gaudapada was in the tradition. And Sureshwara says, I sat at the feet of my guru, Shankaracharya, who removed the darkness from my mind and exposed the reality to me. So his text and everything that he says is in harmony. And he mentions the method of Vedanta just like Shankara does, just like Gaudapada. So that's the Sampradaya. That's the true tradition of the Shankara Advaita. There were many schools of Advaita, but Shankara didn't belong to them. He had his own particular Advaita Sampradaya. Just because you say, I'm non-dual, doesn't mean that you're in Shankara's teaching. It's a particular, peculiar teaching. And the main part of that teaching is this thing that I tried to tell you about Whatever it says in the beginning, it negates it in the end. 
Adiaropa, Apavada. Superimposition, but in the end, <coughs> neti, neti. None of it was true. It was just for the purpose of teaching. It was an upaya, a skillful means in order to bring out the final truth. You are that. There's no gurus, there's no students, there's no creation, destruction, etc. All of those teachings about creation, five koshas, pancha koshas, the seer and the seen, the universal and the particular, the, the three states and the witness, all of that are just temporary teachings. They're not the final teaching. They serve a purpose. But in the end, everything that was said has to be negated. If it's not negated, you haven't reached Advaita. And you're saying when we start to study, we should start with the Brahma Sutras. Because mm -hmm. I tried and it's, I couldn't. I know. No. I say if you have to pick one book, you take ah. the Bhagavad Gita. It's the best book. It's the complete book. You don't need any other book. If you have to take one, but if you really want to get into Vedanta, you should study the Brahma Sutras with a guru. You've got to sit at the feet of someone who knows the Brahma Sutras, who studied it, and knows the true meaning of what these sutras are. Because an independent study of the Brahma Sutras is absolutely useless. You need a teacher for that text. But the Bhagavad Gita is more accessible. And the commentary is very simple. People have a big misconception about Shankaracharya, which is that, oh, Shankaracharya, he's so difficult, he's so profound. We ordinary people can't study him, only great pundits. So we have to study the sub-commentaries on Shankara. Those sub-commentaries are more complicated than Shankara. Shankara is very simple. His language is simple. He didn't write for pundits. You know who Shankaracharya wrote for? People who want moksha, for mamukshus. His ideas are very simple. Not only that, all of the main ideas of Shankara, he repeats them over and over, almost ad nauseum. He makes no doubt about what his position is on all of the important points of Vedanta. He repeats them in different places from different angles. So by the time you finish reading it, you absolutely know his position on that. The problem is if you try to understand Shankara through the sub-commentaries that have been written on him, then you'll be absolutely confused and misled because every sub-commentary, starting with Padmapada, right up to Dayananda, has misinterpreted the Bhashya and put their own ideas into it that are not there, that Shankara never even dreamed of. In a million years, I'll show you, in the Gita, forget Shankara, Krishna says, when you know this, all karmas are burnt up instantly, like ash, like a well-lit ash burns up all the fuel, like a well-lit fire burns up the fuel to ashes. This Gyanagni, the fire of knowledge, burns up all karmas immediately into ash. Finished. 
No more karma left. The Gita is clear about this. 437. I'll show you. 437. What is that? Four thirty-seven. Just as kindle fire reduces all fuel to ashes, so Arjuna does the fire of knowledge reduce all karma to ashes. And Shankar explains there that hence all karmas are burnt instantly by the fire of knowledge. Nahi jnane na sadrasham pavitramiha vidyate. There is nothing as purifying here as jnana. Perfected in yoga in the course of time, one wins that jnana in his own self. It burns up all karmas at once. There's nothing left over to be done after knowledge. That's the teaching of Shankara. Samakala meva, at the very moment that you know the self, all duality will cease. If you say, I know the self, but, there's no but. There's a but, you better start reading the text again. There's no but. But I still have some old vasanas. Na, 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 sorry. Just little vasanas. Na, 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 sorry. But they don't really bother me. Na, 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 sorry. Burnt to ashes. You won't even know they're burnt to ashes. Because you'll be that. So those are the four books that we can be sure are Shankaracharya's. The Prasthanatraya Bhashi and Upadesha Sahasri. Everything else is not his. Especially, you know what Viveka Chudamani teaches that's ascribed to Shankara? No matter how much you listen to Vedanta and no matter how much you study the scriptures, you'll only have indirect knowledge. And if you want the direct knowledge of the self, you must get samadhi. It's in Viveka Chudamani. Same thing in Panchadasi. But Shankar is very clear. Samadhi is absolutely no use for jnana. Patanjali got samadhi. Why would you think the world is not real just because you don't see it? When you come back, the world's there. Just like it was before samadhi. So of course Patanjali thought the world was real. He just thought his purusha was separate from prakriti. But Prakriti is real and the Purusha is real and my Purusha is different than your Purusha. Pure dualism. But he got Samadhi. That shows that Samadhi is of no use. And that's exactly what Shankara says. But every Vedantin for the last 1200 years has claimed that the only way to get the direct experience is to get Samadhi. And so the Yoga Sutras and Advaita Vedanta have become one. You can't find Vedanta anymore. 
Vedanta is the philosophy, Patanjali Yoga is the practice. You study Vedanta, but you practice Ashtanga Yoga, and you work your way up to that Samadhi. When you finally get that Samadhi, then you'll understand what you were studying about Advaita Vedanta. Two totally <coughs> different traditions has become one, and now they're indistinguishable. Almost every ashram, Advaita ashram in the world, you go there and you study the Yoga Sutras, a totally dualistic text, absolutely dualistic. People don't understand that, do you know there's nine schools of Indian philosophy? Six. Six orthodox and three unorthodox. So the, the people who rejected the Vedas, the Nastikas, those who don't accept the Veda or the Upanishads, Buddha, Jain, and Charvaka. Everybody know what Charvaka is? Charvaka was an ancient philosophy of materialism. They didn't believe in God or a soul or an afterlife. 500 BC, the same as today. People think that uh, materialism is a new philosophy. There were materialistic philosophers 500 BC. What about Tantra? Tantra came much later, 200, 300 AD. It's a different thing. And they didn't, ex the Vedas, they had their own Agamas, Shaiva Agamas, etc. But those people who claimed to follow the Veda, the Vedikas, there were six. Does everybody know the six schools of Vedic philosophy? Purvimimamsa, Vaisheshika, Nyaya, Samkhya, Yoga, Uttamimamsa, Vedanta. So, of all of these six, these five are all dualist. Samkhya is dualist. Prakriti and Purusha are real. Yoga is the same as Samkhya, except Samkhya didn't believe in God. They were atheists. There's only Purusha and Prakriti. But Patanjali said there's Purusha, Prakriti and Ishwara. He added God to the mix. But he's a dualist just like Samkhya. They're very close, Samkhya and Yoga. Slight difference. There's God in, in Patanjali and there's no God in Samkhya. Kapila Samkhya, Patanjali Yoga. Vaisheshika and Nyayikas were all dualists. The Purva Mimamsa was absolutely dualist. The only non-dualist school was Vedanta, who said duality never was, is, or will be. So how can yoga, which is a dualistic school, be mixed up with Advaita Vedanta? But that's exactly the situation today. Almost everybody thinks that Advaita and the Yoga Sutras are harmonious. If you go to Rishikesh, there's actually, when you're pulling in, you ever hear of this guy, Swami Ramdev? Very big guy in India nowadays. He's got the Patanjali Advaita Yoga Ashram. <laughs> Patanjali. Shivananda Yoga Vedanta. What's that? Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Centers. 
Yoga Vedanta. Well, if it meant Patanjali Yoga and Vedanta, is that what he meant? Yes. So then he mixed up the thing. But, 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 what's wrong with Patanjali Yoga for Chitta Shuddha? In English? Patanjali Yoga as a practice for purification of the mind, leading to Vedanta. So, you know, you could say, you could practice Patanjali Yoga to purify the mind, but um, you could also say you can practice Christianity to purify the mind, or Sufism to purify the mind, or a number of ways to purify the mind. It wasn't just a question of purifying the mind. It's a question of yoga, atato, yoga, anushasanam. Has anyone studied the Yoga Sutras? A little bit? So you know the first sutras, then therefore uh, uh, the, the teaching of yoga. The second sutra, yoga chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is the removal of all the chitta vrittis, all the modifications of the mind. When they cease, that nirod, then what happens? Anybody know the third sutra? Bhakti is anyway. Uh, that, that's it. Then you stay in your own true nature, which is the Purusha, and he has Kaivalya separate from Prakriti. Then he's separate from Prakriti, and then when you come out of the Samadhi, you know that uh, that you're always free from Prakriti. But Prakriti is real; doesn't cease. You're just not attached to it. Kaivalya. You're, we move from Prakriti. But Prakriti is there and it's real. It's pure dualism. Dvaita, the Dvaita, the idea that duality is real doesn't go away merely because you stop all your thoughts. Every night in deep sleep, all our thoughts stop. And when we come out of it, nobody thinks duality is false. It's not a means of knowledge stopping your thoughts. It won't do anything. Sir. Two things. Um, I'm, I'm really, really touched and convinced from what you say, but on the other hand, my own experience is that if I do meditation, it, it just brings me closer to, to actually pretty much what, what, what Chandra said, that it, it is, there is something, so much truth in it, and, and I, I have the feeling that I'm more receptive of, of, and open towards this, what you always say there comes this yes and maybe we don't know much about potentially maybe <coughs> there was no one who, who did this and if that would have happened then the samadhi would have been the, the way that would lead have led him to this ultimate realization that there is there's only one that led potentially to that realization Maybe, um, or what I wanted to say is only because um, Patanjali didn't get this um, this ultimate experience of, of a writer um, through Samadhi doesn't mean that it is not possible to get it by it. You know? Well, could you get it by going to sleep? <coughs> no, because people say sleep is not the same as Samadhi. In deep sleep, you're unconscious, but in Samadhi, you Totally conscious, super conscious. That's a big difference. Come on, 
Come on, you think there's a, there's no difference to to a, a yogi that's de- dedicated his life to controlling the mind, controlling the senses, in drawing, meditating, and somebody who just ain't fool that goes to sleep? Absolutely no difference. Come on, he has control of himself. He's in drawing. He's filled with sattva. He's 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 a gunatita. How you go into it is different, and how you come out of it is different. But the state cannot be different. Agreed. Deep sleep and samadhi are exactly the same. When you come out of deep sleep, you may come out of it like, uh, oh boy, <laughs> samadhi, you come out of it like, but in the state, there's absolutely no difference. And there's no possibility of getting the knowledge of the self in either of those states. There's no guru and there's no Vedanta. If you could get realization by just stopping your thoughts, you wouldn't need a guru. You wouldn't need a guru. Just stop your thoughts. You'll get the direct experience. Sorry. It's like sleep. You go into it ignorant, you come out of it ignorant. So what about meditation? Am I saying it's of no value? Not only is it of no value, it is absolutely the best sadhana that you can do. That is devotion. The sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, does anyone know what it's called? Meditation. Dhyana Yoga. That meditation is not stopping your thoughts. Vedantic meditation is not Patanjali meditation. Someone has to teach you what real meditation is. Read the Gita. It's not stopping your thoughts. It's burying your mind in the inner self. When the mind merges in the inner self, not stopping your thoughts. Read the text. Read Shankar's commentary. Read his criticism. If you study the Brahma Sutras, you'll come across a sutra that says, Etena Yoga Prayuktaha. By this, yoga is refuted. There's a refutation of Patanjali Yoga in the Brahma Sutras. Read Shankara's commentary there. You'll see how he describes that the yoga never can bring you to the realization of the oneness of the self. But read the commentary of this chapter, the sixth chapter. By doing this jnana, this way, yogis see the self in their self by their self. This jnana, Vedanta jnana, what does it mean concretely? Can you, can you know, what is this? Is this a certain technique? It's absolutely a certain technique. Is it like, I mean, fix my mind or my, my inner self? This is, this is what I want to... Yes. Tell me what it is. There are five names for this meditation. In the Upanishads it's called Nididhyasana. Has anyone heard? Shravana, Manana, Manana Nanidhyasana. Nanidhyasana is Vedantic meditation. In the Upanishads, it's called Adhyatma Yoga, the yoga of the inner self. In the Gita, that same meditation is called Dhyana Yoga. And in Gaudapada Karikas, it's called Mano Nigraha Yoga, the grasping of the mind and burying it into the oneself. Not just stopping your thoughts. Totally different. How do you do it? Maybe we should have the class next year on the sixth chapter of the Gita 
and learn what dhyana is and how it's different from Patanjali meditation. We can just do the kapha tomorrow. We can leave it for tomorrow? Yeah, just leave, you know, just do, choose one of them, one of these. Just do it tomorrow. What, the whole six chapters? No, no, no. Just do the kathas, only a couple, three verses. Oh, the Katu Upanishad. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you have that handy or online? I have it, I have it on. Well, yeah. if you could uh, yeah. get it, I'll take a look and see. Uh-huh. The Katu Upanishad has a very wonderful description of what Vedantic meditation is as opposed to Patanjali Samadhi. It's a very different thing. The whole procedure is different. It has nothing to do with just stopping your thoughts. Stopping your thoughts will take you nowhere. But dhyana, nididhyasana, adhyatma yoga, mano nigraha yoga, this is Vedantic meditation. You need a guru who can teach you how to do this. Until then, you'll think, oh, maybe I just have to stop all my thoughts, and that's meditation. That's not meditation. That's Patanjali yoga but it's not Vedantic meditation. So, it's a wonderful subject to understand, yeah, this Manonigraha in the Mandukya, that's where we find that Gaudapada describes this meditation. In the Katha Upanishad, thank you, that's where it is, Adhyatma Yoga, and in the sixth chapter of the Gita, Jnana. Look at the text, even without Shankara's commentary, and you'll be able to see the difference between Patanjali Yoga and Vedantic meditation. Just take a look at the sixth chapter, and you'll get a feel for what the difference is. Okay, yes? Did you write a book which we can read? I did two things. I did two things. My guru wrote a book in Sanskrit which is a commentary on the Morning Remembrance Hymn. And I translated that book into English. So, that's this book, which is an absolute mind-blower. It's unbelievable. Or I wouldn't have bothered. It took me five years to do that little pamphlet because my Sanskrit is not what it should be or could be. But eventually I got it. You can't get it. You can't get it. Uh, no, we can't. There's a place in India where they have it. <laughs> some, some little boutique shop, you know, little. Swami Sachitanandendra actually has an ashram in Bangalore, and in that ashram downstairs is a bookstore, and in that bookstore they have this. That's in Bangalore. <laughs> So, uh, that's it. Somebody's got it. And then, that was Swami Satchitanandendra, the one who was that old guy in the beginning. But then later I met this other Swamiji in Mysore, and he spent almost 50 years writing a book on the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, and he was not quite finished with it. He had a rough manuscript. Over the years, he kept adding new notes, and he put in little pieces of paper and this. And then when he was 89 years old, he had a stroke, and he couldn't finish it. 
And so he gave it to me, and he asked me if I could somehow make it into something. And the name of the book is The Steps to Self-Realization According to the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Atmanandendra. Is that the name or is it Gita Sopana? And in Sanskrit it's called Gita Sopana, the steps of the Gita. But in English, steps to realization according to the Gita. It's a totally unique book about the Gita. I wouldn't have spent, it took me about seven years to do this, and I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think it was a real contribution to Gita studies. It, it adds things to the Gita that even the Bashir doesn't make clear. That's the tradition of Vedanta. It's not a dead, stale tradition. It grows. It's a living tradition. The teacher, the student, has to add something new to it. Times change, people change. It's a, a living tradition. And the, the student has to even surpass the guru. That's the way it works. And this book on the Gita, in a certain way, brings out things that Shankara missed. Shankara got wrong. Remember I told you, there are, in the Gita it says, there are four types of devotees who worship me. Ati, Jignasu, Artaarti, and Jnani. Artaarti, I said, was the Jnananishta, the Brahmanishta. But Shankara says it's the seeker of wealth. That can't be right. Shankara made a mistake there. Because he's going up and up and up in distress, the one who wants to know. And then the seeker of wealth? How could that be a progression? The Bhakti is not a seeker of wealth. Artha Arti. Ramanuja, if you read his commentary on the Gita, he got it right. Artha means that goal of life. Artha Arti, the one who has only that goal and nothing else. The Jignasu, he wants to know God, but he also has some other interests. This guy, he's the Artha Arti, he's the Ekatika, <coughs> that one-pointed devotion. He wants nothing else but that that jnana-nishta, that bhakta, that he's attained naishkarmiya. He's no longer attached to any of his actions and all he wants is that. That's the third and highest stage before jnana. Siddhi praptau yata brahma apnoti tatshrunu. Having attained that stage, listen to how you attain brahman. Until you become a jnana-nishta, there's no way you can become a jnani. That's it. That's the correct understanding of Artharti. Shankara got it wrong. That's called Durukta. He said something wrong. And the tradition allows you to correct your own guru. It's the beauty of it. You go to the guru. Pratipatena. You go and prostrate to the guru. Prati and you question him. You must question the guru. The tradition is questions and answers. And if the guru can't ask you, answer your question, there's the door. You find another guru. The guru who can answer your questions is the guru. 
He removes your darkness. That's the meaning of Guru. And because of that, Sevaya, you do service to him. Te Jnani, those Jnanis, Upadikshanti, they will teach you if you go in humility and you have real questions, not to waste his time with some silly thing or to impress other people how smart your questions are. Burning questions that you have about the teaching. He has to, he has to take you. It's a law. It's a rule. When you ask them in sincerity, they must try to remove your doubts. When all the doubts are gone, then jnana arises. They will teach you. Those tattva those people who have seen the truth, not people like me who just read the scripture and talk about it. Tattva darshinaha, those jnanis, they will teach you. So you can see there's two meanings of jnani. One is the real jnani who never teaches anybody. And then there's the jnani in the secondary sense who's the guru. But he's not a real jnani. He's an ignorant man whose mind is buried in that and he knows the scripture. He knows the method of Vedanta. That's the guru. One last little question. Uh, the other book, is there also only one little abandoned shop somewhere in India to get it? <laughs> the same place, though. Same, same place. You will have a journey to there. That place has a beautiful name. You're going to India anyway, so maybe the name of the place is called the Adhyatma Prakasha. Karyalaya. In English it means the institute of the light of the inner self. They <laughs> got a good name going there, right? <laughs> the institute, Karyalaya is an institute. Prakasha is light. Adhyatma is the inner self. And the city? Bangalore. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, If you go to the, if you Google it, something will come up and you can get to their website and they list all the books there. There's a catalog and I think you might be able to even order it uh, somehow through the internet, maybe. Um, so there are two books. One is the commentary on the morning remembrance prayer. Those three little verses, the whole Vedanta is in there. And that's this yeah. new book. And um, then there is the steps to self-realization according to the Bhagavad Gita. Is that the title? I haven't written any book yet. I'm going to do one book myself if I don't die before this happens. And that book is going to be Vedanta and Science. Vedanta for Modern Man. Can we give up all of the superstitious ideas in Vedanta and still have something left? Do the core teachings of Vedanta contradict science? Do we have to be unscientific and follow Vedanta? I say no, and I want to write a book about this. And that's what I'm hoping to do. That'll be my own contribution to the teaching. But uh, 
we'll see if that ever comes about. The title of Gita Sopana, is it Gita Sopana? Yeah, Sopana means steps. No, but is the title in English or is the title Gita Sopana? No, the real title is in English, Steps to Self-Realization According to the Gita. And on the top it says Gita And I have an article in the Encyclopedia of Indian Philosophy. Ever hear of Karl Potter? One of the greatest Indologists of modern times. He edited a 26-volume book on Indian philosophy. And in that 11th chapter it says that 11th volume is called um, Shankara's Followers, after Shankara, Shankara's Followers. And in the introduction, I write that all of the followers of Shankara have totally misunderstood Shankara, and everything you're going to read in this volume is wrong, <laughs> especially, and I have an 11-page critique of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, why it's not only wrong, but it's a defect why it has to make you feel like the gentleman said I have a special mystical state that you guys don't it's a defect it will not give you jnana it'll just make you proud and so forget about nirvikalpa samadhi it has no place in Advaita Vedanta the articles in the encyclopedia of Indian philosophy no, 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 no. <laughs> it's I think it's maybe only a PDF online. I think. I, I, I don't know if that volume is. Okay. I mean, there's another volume that's uh, that's on um, uh, archive.org. That one maybe. I'm not sure. But you don't have to get it because I've already told you what Nibikop is. So you don't have to read the article. I so do you think that a learned Vedanta? one who's read all the texts, memorized the Gita, memorized the half the Upanishads, do you think he's free of the vanity any more, any less than, than the guy who comes into Samadhi? No, I think the guy who's memorized the whole Shastra probably is more arrogant than even the guy who got Samadhi. Pundit. I'm a big pundit. It's just as bad. Thinking that you've understood it. I know the subtleties of Vedanta. You don't know it. This business will take you nowhere. It'll just fill you up. That's not Vedanta. So, no, the ego doesn't want to go. It wants to feel, I got samadhi. I know Vedanta. I'm a big pundit. I've studied all the scriptures. I've memorized all the mantras. I can sing the whole arti by heart. Nobody knows that the... Goes on. This is all the duality that the ego. It'll do anything but go, anything but go. He's a tricky guy, this guy, but he doesn't want to go. Only the Vedanta can get rid of him. You just gotta cut your thumb off. Ten fifteen, ladies and gentlemen, for Namada.